This is The Good List. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And in this episode, I am joined by my friend again, Seth Haynes, as we continue our chat that we're calling A Drink with a Friend. We're talking about sacramentality, what it looks like to live with a sacramental mindset. And we've got several episodes already in the feed for you, the introduction to sacramentality, Advent, and addiction. And this particular episode, I think, will resonate with a whole lot of you because um, it's pretty universal these days. Before we get into that, though, we want to talk about what we're drinking. So, Seth, tell me more about what's in your cup. Yes, I am drinking a coffee from Onyx Coffee Labs. Okay. Um, which is my local coffee shop. I know we've talked about this before. These guys are yep. world class. They do not pay me to say this. They have never paid me to say this. I just really love what they're doing. And I'm drinking their brew called Monarch. Uh, it's French pressed. I French pressed this, this just before we started recording. Mm-hmm. And they say that the flavor profile is dark chocolate, molasses, red wine, dried berries, and they claim it is thick and syrupy, though I didn't <laughs> really put enough grounds in to make it thick and syrupy. But I will attest to all the other flavor profiles. Okay. And this has been my coffee of choice lately. I love it. Do you put anything in your coffee? No. Yeah. No, that is heresy. So I, I'm – Tish, we've talked about this before. I try to be really ecumenical. I try to have you know sort of some broad bounds for people. We're all on our own journeys, and I get that. But when we put uh, cream or sugar into our coffee, that's where I I just have to draw the line and say, like, there are some heretical bounds I won't cross. And that's one of them. I love that. That makes me feel so much better because I'm such a purist, too. Um, The way I describe it is if you need that stuff, then you're not drinking the right coffee. That's kind of how I feel. Yeah. Just drink, uh, drink big box store coffee. That's right. Yeah. We sound like such snobs. Oh, we are. That's, we yeah, are. that's okay. We, we are. Yeah. What, well, right. what are you drinking? I, I hope it's as good as what I'm drinking. It's admittedly not. Um, so what I'm drinking today is reflective of the fact that it's in the 80s today, even though it's freaking fall. Um, but I'm drinking sparkling water. <laughs> with that's grapefruit flavored and not even LaCroix, but the grocery store brand. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> uh, we have a local grocery store brand in Texas called HEB that everyone is super loyal to. We, we love HEB here in Texas and they actually make a really good sparkling water and it's so much cheaper than LaCroix. So we buy it all the time and we are a little bit ashamed of how fast we go through this, this, but we don't drink soda um, because we're old and we can't do that anymore. Um, so we just go through sparkling water like it's going out of style. So that's what I'm drinking. I drink this at least once a day. So I mean, we we do that too. We we tend to move towards Lacroix. Um, I probably have had three today, but we don't have H E B here. Um, but I do love H E B. And again, I feel like we're promoting places, which feels like <laughs> awkward all of a sudden. It is awkward. But uh, you know, H E B they have done some really good. Um. They've promoted some really good spiritual formation work over the years. I was going to say, if you've ever been to Laity Lodge or have heard of them or their foundation, they're a fantastic company. Um, we should probably get someone on sometime um, because they're really great. And I've Absolutely. gone on a few silent retreats there. And anyway, it's a whole thing. H-E-B, who knew? Yeah, I think when I started writing, they were one of the first people that I started writing for. Yeah. Oh, cool. There you go. All right. 
Well, the topic we're going to talk about, hopefully through a sacramental lens today, is um, what I would say is probably one of the most pervasive pastimes of 2020, and that is doom scrolling. Seth, how would you describe doom scrolling? I think I would first describe it with some deep uh, pipe organ music. Uh, maybe a little Takata and Fugue, you know, that's how I feel about uh, just 2020 in general, but that's how I feel about uh, the, the, the feeds, the Twitter feeds, uh, the Facebook feeds, whatever. For me, it's mostly uh, Twitter, but it's just literally sitting there and scrolling the feed, allowing your amygdala, the part of your brain that's like fight or flight aware to just freak out and give you total anxiety about all the COVID and all the election and all the everything. Um, and, and just really like just sitting there and feasting on the doom of the world. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I mean, the name says it all. It, it's interesting to me that we humans would actually seek it out. And yet here it is us doing it all over. The, I mean, it's pervasive. Um it's looking for doom, but it's not because we actually want it, but because I, I, I don't know. To me, this is just a fascinating psychological study. Like, it, does it give us a sense of control, even though it's totally not? Does it? I mean, it's addictive for sure. I don't know. I'm just fascinated by why so many of us are so prone to doom scrolling. Yeah, I think one of the things that we know from a storyteller's perspective and also from a marketing perspective is there are a couple of really huge um, emotional hooks that can drive a story, that can pull you in, that can get you invested in the story. Um, And one of those things is fear, fear and anxiety, Um, you know, in the same way that a a good horror novel or a good horror movie uh, pulls you in. Um, and you just wait for that resurre- resolution. I think that's kind of what we're experiencing here in 2020 is just the, the feasting on um, the doom, being pulled into the anxiety, the fear, the doom, and just like praying and hoping and waiting for a resolution. And and maybe at some point thinking like, if I just scroll one more time, maybe I'll find some resolution. Um, but so far this year, it, it has not come. That is so interesting. I was just talking like a few minutes ago with Annie Downs, I was on her show and Annie was talking about how we have, what she's realized is she can endure all sorts of stuff if she knows there's an end to it. Like if she can be told, you know, like when she's reading a book, okay, I see that there's a hundred pages left. So at some point something's going to end, but we don't have that. And so it's almost like we're looking for like the plot to thicken just so that we know we're moving in time. I don't know. Maybe that's something to do with it. I think that's true. And again, I think, you know, humans for, for years and years and years, um, you know, uh, perhaps our entire existence have, uh, loved their emotions. (laughs) I mean, right. Like we want to feel something. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, so I came out of, of school in a really interesting political milieu. It was the late nineties, early two thousands. The world was kind of at peace prior to 9-11, there was this almost sense of like uh, decadent lethargy. Like you didn't really have to feel anything. Everything looked up. Everything was good. Everything was fine. And, you know, then we obviously had 2001 and that changed things for a season. And then we had 2007, 2008, the financial crisis, and that changed things for a season. But I think, um, you know, at its base level, we, we medicate ourselves so much 
uh, to our emotions and we numb ourselves to our emotions that when something comes along that actually makes us feel, it just sucks us in. It can make us feel joyful. It can make us feel afraid. It can make us feel, you know, that impending sense of doom. Um, and it just sucks us in because we want to feel something. That's interesting. You know, where my brain went was um, the, the, what was that stage? Like the golden, or I'm trying to remember what the name was for the 1920s, um, post-World War I, um, what's depicted in The Great Gatsby. You know, mm-hmm. right after this, the Great War, people just went bonkers with the drinking and the partying and the excess and the decadence, which, of course, you know, laid a great foundation for the Great Depression, not that much longer. Um, so, yeah, I almost see this as part of the human condition where we seek out something to numb ourselves. So I wonder if endless Twitter feeds are, are our generation's, you know, giant cocktail parties. I don't know. Oh, man, that. That kind of hurt a little bit. I mean, maybe, yeah. I mean, I think maybe that's true. Maybe we're all playing the great Gatsby and we're just doing it on <laughs> right. Twitter. And we're mm-hmm. telling ourselves it's okay. So, it's okay. Yeah. I'm curious, Seth, like if you could <laughs> pull back the curtain a little bit and tell me somewhat about how this has been in your life personally, um, you know, and how you've experienced doom scrolling, both like your patterns and maybe how it's like the aftermath, the effect of it. For me, this really um, was highlighted at the beginning of COVID. There have been two times in 2020 where this has really been highlighted. I'm sure you already know what two times those are. But right. number one uh, was when the um, when when COVID hit and they started releasing numbers every day, and the numbers would be different, and you would actually have numbers from Johns Hopkins that were a little bit different than the numbers from the CDC, which were a little bit different than your state numbers. Um, and so what I would do is I would find myself like, for me, again, it was Twitter scrolling through and just like looking at the numbers from the different states and looking at the discrepancies and getting really locked into the data and people's take on the data. Um, and then jumping out to those sites and sort of comparing. At one point, it was so bad that I actually graphed uh, the the growth rate per a particular Twitter user who was reporting every day. And I was, I was like, charting his growth rate, you know, the numbers oh, wow. that he said every day, yeah, um, which is really terrible. But anyway, um, so that was that season. And then I really felt like I needed to snap out of it. And so I did for a while by just taking a fast, like I just broke, broke away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found it coming up again, right in the days leading up to the election. And then really up until probably about a week and a half, maybe a week <laughs> ago, um, just thinking, surely this isn't, what I think it is surely reasonable minds will prevail surely. And just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and seeing all the unreasonable takes um, and all the conspiracy theories and all the QAnon adjacent stuff and all of the just bonkersville stuff, you know? Um, And so what I had to do was again, curate some practices that were, you know, like not giving into that need to scroll that need to, to really feed, um, yeah, Bonkersville. So what did about you? you? How how does this affect you? <laughs> um, so no surprise, it's probably the same pattern of of when I was on my my feed so much more than I normally am. I wasn't as numbers centric as you were, it sounds like at the beginning of COVID. I definitely checked daily, but I don't think, you know, I definitely didn't graph it. I was more fascinated in the human response. I was fascinated by all the bread making, all the, you know, dance parties happening live, all the people providing free lessons online for their 
for, you know, the, the collective community of the internet. And so part of me really gravitated to the positive side of we're all in this together, I think yeah. as a way to cope, you know, a way to yeah. think about it personally. Um, I feel it's tricky for me to say this, but I feel like we were quite privileged in, in our situation because the type of schooling we do anyway was very easy to just transition to finishing up online, um, from home. And I work from home anyway. And my work, Kyle was a easily able to continue doing his work. And so our life was not as shaken as everybody else. So I found myself just almost more like an observer watching what everyone was doing. But I still found after a while that I was replacing what I was doing with other people, you know, mm. or watching what they were doing instead of me actually doing the thing um, yeah. that they were doing online. So I, I had to stop myself probably April-ish or something when I realized I, I can't just be consuming all the time. Like, this is not what I'm made for. <laughs> I'm not made to be a consumer. And yet I've got all this coming at me, you know? Um, so that was the first wave. And then the second one, for sure, around the election, I found myself uh, during the election itself, staring at maps until my eyes were crossed, like everybody else, you know, <laughs> memorizing names of counties and states I don't live in, that, you know, I never knew before. As America, though that county. Right. As though that, like me staring at it was somehow going to make things shift or change or whatever. Um, and then right after the election was called for Biden, like what you were saying, just watching all the, the takes afterwards yeah. and, you know, the things. And, I found myself feeling a, I'm not an anxious person by nature. Like I'm not a worrier. I don't worry in my parenting really. I, when I travel, things don't make me nervous like they do other people. I'm just not a nervous Nelly by nature. I found myself feeling literal anxiety as yeah. I was doom scrolling and it was affecting my sleep. I was feeling short tempered to my kids. Um, and to Kyle, I was just not, I was feeling out of body. I wasn't feeling mm. myself. And I noticed my my oldest was seeming really um, lethargic and also short-tempered. Anyway, cut to the chase. Turns out, like, I was inadvertently passing this on to her. She, you know, is almost 16. She she can follow things. She was feeling real anxiety about the election. And it's like, yeah. that's not good what I have accidentally done. You know, I did not yeah. mean to pass this on to her. So what was what was the anxiety there for you? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question because it's like, why, why do I feel this? Um, for me, it's, I guess it's the anxiety of feeling this is how I felt in 2016, but suddenly having, um, kind of almost like a lens change and realizing the world I live in is not the world I thought it was. And so wow. watching, um, regular Joes and Janes feel the way they feel was was really surprising to me, I guess. You know, I, I almost felt like, I, you know, 2016 was such a blow. And then I almost, it's not so much that I convinced myself that that's not going to happen again, but I just didn't think of it in quite the same way, this go around. And then I found myself just, you know, it's it's not even the leaders that have been surprising to me so much. It's other people reacting. And so I'm just watching almost with a little bit of um, sobering, um, almost a mournful anxiety out of just a what, what's going on collectively in our culture. I, I mean, that's not really what I'm, 
I need to think about what's causing the anxiety, but that's what comes to mind. What did you feel anxious about this kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So I am a data collector. You know me, you know me yeah. pretty well. Um, and I think a lot of it was data collection. And I think for me, it's more of being aware of potential outcomes. I, I feel like, and this is going to sound weird, but we're in this sort of choose your own adventure moment. And I feel like for me, the more information I can gather, the the more I'm better able to understand the adventure that America is choosing, which is a mm-hmm. super interesting adventure, uh, I might also say. Yeah. But that aside. Um, right. Yeah. So I think for me, it's more of that. And I I think the more I get clarity on the adventure we're choosing, the more concerned I get. And so for me, it's not necessarily anxiety. Um, And I try to pull back from the anxiety and say, like, what, what here, what's the negative truth here that I need to pay attention to and that I need to prepare for and that I need to understand. And then what's the, what's the sort of amygdalic, the amygdala response, that sort of fight or flight response that, that, that could be sort of feeding my anxiety from the doom scrolling. One of the things I know you're a massive, uh, literature, literature buff and teacher expert. We might say expert. Um, did you ever read Sinclair Lewis's it can't happen here? No, I don't think I've even heard of it. Really? This book, and I, I, th- I think that I, I said the title right. I'm going to uh, double check it while we're talking. Yeah, go for it. But th- this book is super important to me, um, mm. and I, and I heard about it from I don't even remember from whom, but it was before the 2016 election, and it was a literature professor, literature professor who was just saying this is a really important book, and so I, mm. I read this book, and this book sort of haunts me. Um, and in the book, Sinclair Lewis talks about uh, this American milieu wherein a strong man uh, comes into power and it's it's really close to what we've seen over the last four or five years. And, and, and his point is it's not necessarily the strong man. It's not necessarily that first run leader that you need to worry about, but it's it's the guys who come after. It's the guys who who take the foundation that's been laid and then like really amp it up. Um, and so for me, when I dim, doom scroll, it, it's more like trying to project, are there people who are trying to take us down a much darker path four or five, six years from now? Are there politicians who are taking what's worked um, for for the last four or five years and trying to amplify the fear and amplify um, the anxiety and a- amplify the division um, so that they can really set us on a course that's irreversible. And, and that sounds really dark in like, it could be anxiety inducing, but for me, it's more of like, what's, what's the course we're charting and it's not healthy either. I mean, I can call it data collection or <laughs> analysis or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's not any more health healthy because I, I can't do anything about it. Right. That's that's when it becomes, I find, unhealthy. And that's what I was going to ask you next, because we're also in this stage of pandemic fatigue. I think we all are aware of of the reality of that, that in these holidays, we want things to be different and they're not. And in fact, for those of us in the U.S., it's even worse. Um, yeah. You know, you described those numbers at the beginning. And I just remember thinking every day, checking them, thinking, oh, my gosh, these are getting really high. It's nothing. Yeah. It's a It's a drop in the bucket compared to now at the end of 2020. 
and we can tune, we can numb ourselves to that because of this fatigue. So I'm wondering how much of this doom scrolling is just a way to find, I mean, the process of it is numbing us, yet we're scrolling in hopes to find something that can give us some feeling, like almost like to unnumb us from all of this. I don't know. Yeah, Hmm. maybe, maybe, I don't know. I I think, I mean, again, and I think we've talked about this before, but the social network really sort of talks about the division and the polarization and the the way this sort of content sucks us in. Um, And, and what's really fascinating in that documentary and not to ruin it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but in that documentary, they talk about these notions of, sort of emotion over truth. That's an oversimplification, but, but when truth becomes fungible, um, then it, it, it actually becomes negative for democracy. And, and they actually go on to say, one of them goes on to say like, we need basic notions of truth again. And I I think that is the thing that I keep scrolling, looking for is what is the nugget of truth in here? Where is the signal in here against all the noise? And I just don't see it. End 2020 and start off 2021 on the right foot with sustainable shoes and bags that are actually beautiful from fabric that's soft, amazingly durable, and machine washable. All this is from Rothy's, a longtime loyal sponsor of the show. Their shoes are just bonker balls, amazingly comfortable, and the super soft fabric is knitted for a zero break-in period. And yet they still maintain a high level of durability for out-of-the-box daily wear. And since they're made from recycled plastic water bottles, Rothy's has kept over 60 million single-use plastic bottles out of landfills. And when your shoes are ready for a refresh, they're fully machine washable. No more soaking and scrubbing by hand or trying to get the stains out with the toothbrush. Just toss them in with the laundry. I'm personally keeping my feet comfy and warm these days with their Chelsea boots, which I wear several times a week. They look great when I'm out walking my dog and when I'm teaching my high school classes. In fact, I just wore them to class today. But I'm super loving some of their new lace-up shoes, and I just saw that they brought back their best-selling merino wool shoes. All of these would make fantastic holiday gifts. Hint, hint, Kyle. Check out all their styles of flats, sneakers, sandals, boots, and even bags, totes, and organizers in their ever-evolving colors and patterns by going to rothys.com slash goodlist. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash goodlist. Rothys is all about comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes and bags you've been looking for. So one more time, that's rothys.com slash goodlist. For all my lady listeners, end 2020 and start 2021 by wearing the most comfortable and best-fitting bras ever. With a range of more than 80 unique sizes of bras, this means Third Love is really, really good at it. They let me pick out some bras to try so I could tell you firsthand how great they really are. Well, it would have been a challenge picking straight from their stock of over 80 sizes in 21 different styles. But with their Fit Finder quiz, it took less than a minute to help me determine which of their more than 80 sizes fit me best. I had my hopes up when I first started wearing them. And to be honest, I don't have much to say because I keep forgetting that I'm wearing them. 
And you probably agree with me, that is the highest praise one could give a bra. I'm so used to fidgeting with my previous bras, with straps that slip, or even have that nagging thought that I can't wait until the end of the day to get into something more comfortable. Nope, these bras just quietly and confidently do what they're made to do. One little secret to their success is that they don't simply take one size of bra and then scale it up or down to come up with different combinations. They actually build each size from scratch, taking body and breast shape individually into account. That's why they've ended up with over 80 different sizes. So odds are they've got your size and shape combination. And Third Love is so sure that you'll love your new bras, they give every customer 60 days for free and easy returns. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone and... Because of that, they're offering you 10% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash goodlist. That's goodlist with no space to find your perfect fitting bra and to get 10% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash goodlist for 10% off. That's a good way to put it. We're looking for truth, honestly. Um, when you say documentary, are you referring to It Can't Happen Here? Did they make a film about this? I'm sorry, the documentary, um, uh, The Social Network. The social, oh, The Social that, Network. The social, you mentioned that. Not Social yeah. Network. The so, what was that called? The Social the one about- Dilemma. Yeah, Social yeah, Dilemma. Exactly. No, yes. it's totally fine. Yeah, The Social <laughs> Dilemma. That's so – no, that's really good, too. Um, it, you know, yeah. I think part of the sacramentality of um, – the sacramental posture that you and I have both grown to appreciate is this acknowledgement of seeking the beauty that leads us to goodness, like moral goodness, moral right mm-hmm. and wrong, which then leads us to truth. And that's where I find that doom scrolling can screw us up from the beginning because it's not beautiful. Like it's yeah. it, it's a dead end to truth because yeah. there's there's nothing beautiful about it. And we're looking. For and often it. it's and often it's not even true. I mean, you yeah. know, the the doom scrolling is right now. Uh, if if we're using the term doom, doom scrolling to say like s- spending our time scrolling through Twitter or Facebook or whatever, when you mm-hmm. when you do that right now, I don't care if what wing of politics you're looking for um, mm-hmm. or looking at or you know sort of impregnated with, for lack of a better term. I think you know what you're seeing is people who are using hyperbole to create more division, to get more of their way. And and that's not always true. That's, that might be hyperbole for that matter. But, um, but so often those hyperbolic use, that hyperbolic use of emotions is not good. It is not true and it is not beautiful. And, and so it, 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 like you said, it sort of sets us off on the wrong path from the beginning, instead of starting with what are the facts What's still happening that's beautiful in the world? Um, and, and what's good? What's good in, in the space? What's good in my life? What's good in the world around me? Um, and really going back to those, those practices of, of the sacramental practices of what's good and true and beautiful in the world around me. And because of that sacramental lens that you and I have come to appreciate to the point of, you know, like our life hangs on it for, um, for our own, um, just wellness and and who we are as people. I think it's good for us to flip the script and talk about the opposite of doom scrolling as well. And, you know, I've heard the term joy scrolling that showed up in um, early November. I saw people talking about that. And I don't know if that's quite scratching the itch of what I think is, is what's the counterbalance to doom scrolling, but there are healthy parameters 
to take so that you aren't doom scrolling. And you and I both find it easy to just throw our phone in the local pond and walk away. And that's our solution. And while there are times and places to just walking away from the screen, that's also maybe not realistic and also maybe not ultimately healthiest. So I'm curious what you have found to be good practices in your um, scrolling to make it less doomy. Yeah. So I I told you before we started recording that one of the things I've been doing lately, which doesn't feel healthy either, is just getting in and getting out, like getting in, uh, dropping, you know, whatever thought or, or, um, you know, link or whatever that I need to share and then getting out and then coming back a few hours later and only responding to whoever's engaging in that in a, in a really gracious way. Um, I ignore trolls. I don't respond to people who want to pick fights. Um, and so there's a piece of it that's like if you curate your own feed and you curate what you're saying well, um, then you'll attract people who are are curating uh, well also. So I think mm-hmm. that's a huge part of it. But for me, I've been curating lists more and more. And in fact, this week I got so sort of fed up with uh, Twitter in general. And I have a project that sort of is is thinking through the lens of food. But I just started asking people, hey, what's your favorite who's your favorite food writer? And what's been super interesting about it is that the people who responded to that are all over the map politically. But here we all were talking about this beautiful human thing that is food and the writers who do it well and who uh, really kills it when we're talking about describing the sensory experience of food. And what that showed me is that like we all have that like sacramental hunger, that, that hunger for what's good and the manifestation of grace in the world. And, um, and we're willing to share it, but we just need to be asked the question. Mm. And so I think part of what I'm trying to do more and more is ask sacramental questions, curate sacramental feeds and lists. Um, and then when I know the hot hours, right? Like when Tucker and Cooper are on, uh, (laughs) we probably all need to just avoid Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so just having some block hours where I know that I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna sit in front of, of, uh, the feed and scroll. What about you? That's really good, actually. Yeah. Whenever you mentioned the lists, my first thought was, oh yeah, Twitter has a list feature. <laughs> I need it's so to, good. I need to use that. Well, you know, part of what I've done is I have a Chrome extension. First of all, I don't have them on my phone. Um, so I only am on, whenever I'm on a laptop, so it feels less immediate. You know, it's just not in my pocket while I'm at a checkout line. And that helps enormously. Um, Even in even Instagram, um, which is only an app, you know, it's only a a phone or whatever tablet app. I just download it every Friday to be on it. And then I delete it again. That's my parameters. I'm not saying that's for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's bold. There are reasons. And and it's not always that way, but that's what's been good for me right now for yeah. a whole other thing. But so um, the Chrome extension for Twitter cleans out everything on the left and the right side. So all I see is my the main column, um, which is helpful because I just don't see all the extra stuff that Twitter is trying to pull me 
to see. Like it, it, it can't be the boss of me. It can't tell me what it is that I should look at. And so that's been really helpful. I have to basically seek it out if I want to, you know, like I, I have to type in somebody's name in the search bar if I really want to know. And then more often than not, I'm starting to type and I'm like, wait, why do I want to see what they're up to? That is ridiculous. Um, so that stops me somewhat, but the list is such a good idea because even among my feed, it's just, it's not, yeah, hmm. it's not, it's not what I want in my life most of the time. Um, so I appreciate that idea. Um, yeah, is your, does your extension, are you saying your extension clears out the suggestions on the yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. It, it cleans out suggestions, trending things, um, all the stuff like, you know, fleet that came out with those little, yeah. I don't know if you've seen that. It doesn't have that. Like it, it doesn't have anything extra basically. So huh. yeah. I can put a link. I want that extension. Yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> um, and then a few months ago, you and I talked about Instagram and how you started using it differently because I really admired how you seem to take a really artful posture on Instagram. And you told me that you just started deleting anybody who didn't do the same, not so much literally art, but maybe who had an artful take on life. Yeah. And I started doing that and that helped enormously. So yeah. I was doing the whole Friday only thing before I started cleaning up my feed. And so perhaps I don't need to be that extreme anymore because it was messing with my head. Yeah. Um, so it's really helped me a lot on Instagram. And I appreciate you telling me that that's what you've done. Yeah. Yeah. For me, Instagram is about beauty. And I, I won't say that that doesn't mean from time to time I won't have something that is a little bit politically charged. I have a couple very, what I think are quasi artistic posts that Mm -hmm. some have said are um, politically charged and that's fine, but they're photos. I mean, I use it for photography Um, and I mostly follow photographers and friends and creatives and I, you know, creatives in the world, I'm, I'm finding that creatives in the world right now are begging for beauty We're just saying like, give us more beauty, give us more beauty, give us more beauty. The world is so ugly right now. And even when they're making, uh, you know, photographs or pieces of art or writing poems or whatever that are aching and, and yearning, there's still a, a, a lot of beauty that, that, you know, as we've talked about that emotional apologetic of, of like, we are humans in the world and we are begging out for something more. We are begging out for truth. We are begging out for God. And so if you are on Instagram and you're posting screenshots of your Twitter feed and your screenshots are, you know, about your political take of the day, you're not in my feed anymore. Um, Or if the only posts I ever see from you are you trying to sell me something, I don't see you anymore. And, and this has cut out some really good people from my feed that I love. Uh, that, you know, if they called me right now, I'd pick up the phone and we'd talk, but, right. um, or I'd sit down and have a drink with a friend with them. But by the same token, like life is too short. The feed is too tertiary to my life and I just don't want it to control me. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Um, I think it helped me whenever you talked about how, um, muting them wasn't necessarily something you were saying about how you felt about them as a person necessarily. It was just you curating your feed on this particular app. It's like, you know, person X, you still appreciate for what they do in, in the world, but because they use Instagram more business-like, you're just going to mute them because it's not for you. And that gave me permission to be a little more, um, 
a little more free with that mute button. So that that's a good take. Yeah. And that's not saying that I don't have good friends out and I, I mean, I want to see my friends work. So if I have yeah. friends that use it from time to time for marketing, great. I, I mean, I want to know if yeah. you're, for instance, releasing a book that I, I want to read, like, I want to know that. Right. Um, it's just when it's constant. And I think part of that for me, so when we take, talk about doom scrolling, there's a piece of that that's, you know, for me, um, maybe seeing all the political and the COVID stuff now isn't necessarily creating anxiety. Yeah. But as a writer, for me, when I scroll and I see this writer who is again promoting something and again getting all this engagement and again doing, you know, all of the markety things to get their name out there, I start to feel this sense of anxiety that like, oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm not I'm not creating enough. I'm not doing what the publisher wants me to do or what my the readers would want me to do or whatever. And so so that's its own form of doom scrolling. Yeah. Right. Like, like to look and to see, oh, this author's doing this and this writer's doing this and this creator's doing that. And this, you know, whatever attorney mm-hmm. is doing this and this musician's doing this. And what am I doing? That that is its own form of doom scrolling. So I've just said, you know what? I'm not going to engage in it. I'm not going to do it. That's good. That's really good. I think another thing that I have found really helpful is cr- using resources that help me collect uh, long form things to read um, at a time that's better for me and to focus on that. So I use um, like the app pocket and Feedly and those allow me, like I have a tag on pocket that I've just labeled TBR to be read. So if I am scrolling, let's say Twitter and I see a long form piece that I want to read, but I don't want it to be via Twitter. I'll just tag it TBR. And then later I will, um, maybe if I have time, read these long form pieces. And I bring this up because I wonder if sometimes we're doom scrolling or even joy scrolling, scrolling, just trying to find the next new thing. Like we're drawn to novelty. And so we just want some kind of headline bite that just makes us feel good for one second, but then it goes away. Whereas when we actually sit with long form pieces and remember what it's like to actually not be distracted by reading something that takes like 20 minutes to read, um, there's a lot more satisfaction ultimately at the end. And so to actually read those things that you're scrolling by instead of just, you know, continuing the scroll. Do you carve out time to, to do, I mean, do you like a set time or a set day or a set hour that you set aside to do that? To read? I need to, I need to, I don't. And I need to, I usually do like connect, um, an activity like, um, standing in line at the grocery store. I'll, I'll pull up my TBR tag and I'll read an article, but I need to be better at it because it just piles up and then I feel overwhelmed. But I like the, I like the thought of like Friday afternoon, you know, to kind of end the work day or something like that, just to plow through it. And then here's the other question that I have when you sit down to, to finally get to the long form pieces. Um, when you look at whatever the tweet was, you know, like tweeting the piece or whenever mm-hmm. you look at the headline, which is often, you know, the whatever's being tweeted, same thing. Do you find that the long form piece actually contains different information, perhaps more nuanced information than the original tweet or than the headline? Not only that, so 100%. And not only that, I found myself looking at it, wondering why I saved it to begin with. Sometimes I'll save things and then realize I don't really actually care about knowing 
that anymore. And they, their headline just sucked me in because it was in context in this feed, you know, basically making me feel a certain way. So I wanted to get to it later. And then for some, you know, with some space, it's kind of that idea, like whenever you feel really angry in an argument, you should walk away for just a little bit and then return. Um, yeah. So I found myself like, oh, I don't care about that anymore. But if I did sit and read something, it was usually so much well, you know, depending on the topic, usually so much better because it's it's a writer's real work. It's a journalist's yeah. piece that she spent a lot of time on. And, you know, it, it's not about the headline, really. It's about the work and the research and the and the gathering of, of data that I actually could use. Um, that is so much healthier for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's where we've got to get back to even as readers and writers. But I think, you know, taking it back to the sacramental um, to the sacramental reality, like you said, th this is somebody's work and work is a sacramental thing. Like it deserves to be considered and wrestled with. And if you don't agree with it, that's fine, but it deserves full consideration, not headline consideration. Yeah. And I think that's what I'm uh, sensing right now in, in the feeds is that um, the most salacious pieces that might be tampered a little bit or tempered a little bit by the rest of the facts of the piece, you know, that's what we tweet. That's what we hold out. Like for instance, today, a friend sent me an article where, um, you know, this Texas chiropractor, uh, normal dude uh, said, if the president gave him the word, he would take up arms in March, you know, regardless of evidence, regardless of court cases, whatever. Well, that was just one guy that was cherry picked out of this article. And the rest of the article Really, like when I read the whole thing, it really made me feel a lot less anxious. Yeah. Um, but that one piece that was sort of cherry picked and texted, and and that was the thing that kind of got me riled up for the day. Mm -hmm. um, so I I feel like giving full consideration to people's full work yeah. is something that we've just forgotten how to do. That's a good point. And you know, these headlines are meant to be um billboards for us to be drawn to more than you know actually giving us factual information and so a lot of times writers don't even write their own headlines they they're simply created as to what can give us the most attention on on the twitter or the feeds or whatever um and that's good to remember that the real work is inside and yeah, yeah. so if, if somebody's feeling that like to counteract the doom scrolling a way to literally not doom scroll is to stop scrolling and actually read yeah. and if you find yourself doom scrolling only because you have 5 minutes then instead bookmark those things. And then when you have another five minutes next, just read the piece. Don't even yeah. go onto that feed, just read it. And that'll help. Um, and I know we don't have too much more time, but I'm curious, Seth, because you've mentioned this before, how you read news, perhaps not via a feed. Is that correct? Yeah. So recently, and this is kind of a recent development. I, I've done this before, but I've, I've returned to it. I actually returned to it just after the election. I did a little bit of research on finding um, what are the most center to center left, center right leaning um, publications or news outlets. Um, and so, yeah, certainly some of those lean more to the left, some lean more to the right, but for the most part, they're sort of in that moderate centrist view. And then I've collected them in a side tab and I get all my news there. Got it. So I try to avoid, um, you know, the Apple news feed. Um, which is pretty good, but I still try to avoid it. I try to avoid the dredge report. I try to avoid anything 
that's curating news for me. Um, Facebook's the same way. Twitter's the same way. Um, I try to avoid echo chambers that are algorithmically driven Mm -hmm. and try to go straight to the source. So, you Mm -hmm. know, the AP, Reuters, Axios, ABC, um, the Financial Times, Economist, like places where people actually have a vested interest in trying to share facts and their careers actually rise and fall on whether or not they share facts. Yeah. That's really good. And it reminds me of a little, I had a conversation on my former podcast, not too long before it ended with a friend of ours, I think most uh, mutually, Erin uh, Lochner. And yeah. she was talking about how she made an effort, a conscientious effort to subscribe, like the paper subscription to her own local newspaper. Yeah. And she said what, what that did both was supporting local journalism, like real journalist work, you know, and it, it reminded her of her immediate community. Like it, it's not just about this one giant just blob of earth that, I mean, yeah, the globe, the, we're all in this together. So it all matters, but also zero in on what does it look like in your community? And a, it's often a lot less doom scrolly when you, when you focus on your own community. And I thought that was a really good bit of wisdom there. Yeah. And it, yeah. and it puts your feet back in your own soil, right? right? It's a way of being grounded in, in your place. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to use your phrase, I think, um, well, a phrase that you borrowed from somebody, you know, when you talk about the, the discipline, the spiritual discipline of what is it? Stability staying put. The vow of stability. Yeah. The benedictine the vow. vow. Yeah. yeah the yep. vow and the vow, the way you've put it, the vow of staying put, I think yeah. like when you invest in your local communities, journalistic scene, like you're you're making a vow to your community that I'm going to stay put here and I'm going to like really value what it has to say. Yeah, that's right. That's a good way to put it. All right, Seth. So we've been talking about a lot of hard things, but you know, part of the whole point of living sacramentally is to focus on the good, not to pretend like it doesn't exist, but to live into it, recognizing it as a gift from God. And so, um, I like talking about the good list in for this very reason. So I am curious for you right now, what's a thing or an idea or a work of art or a habit right now that's making your life a little bit better? So I think I'm going to go with habit this time. And okay. it's a little bit of a different habit. And it's one that I'm now taking up again that I have put down. Okay. And um, so in the past, I've always had a spiritual director and found that to be very helpful and very useful. Um, and then I guess right before COVID, probably two months before COVID, um, for whatever reason, I just hit a lull with the director that I had. I loved him. He's a great dude. Um, but in that lull, then we entered into um, COVID. And then my wife and I entered into the Catholic church. And so I just decided I really need to take that habit up again of just having monthly spiritual formation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just had my first meeting today with a new spiritual director. And we are certainly going to talk about habit formation and spiritual practices. And if today is any indication, we're also going to talk about art and literature and all those things and how those are formative practices for uh, for spiritual people living in a very tangible world. So that's my habit. That's my so new, it's, good. It's, it's a new old habit. But what are the things? What, it's, it's, I lo- it's lovely. Maybe we can talk about it more in the days to come. But what are the things Probably that will. you're doing or what's a piece of art or a piece of literature or music that, that's really uh, mm-hmm. get, getting you going these days? 
Well, normally my Spotify recommendations are crap. Like they don't usually <laughs> give me good ideas for whatever reason. I don't know why. Um, but they actually did a good job last week by recommending this one new to me artist that I had never heard of. Her name is Sarah Sparks. And mm. so I clicked play on her because they recommended a song called Eustace Scrub. And I was like, who names a song Eustace Scrub? You know, the character in um the Narnia series. I thought that's really weird. So I click on it. I really liked it. I checked out the whole album. The whole album is called Into the Lantern Waste. It is an album dedicated to the Chronicles of Narnia. And it is so good. And it's not it's not a literal storytelling version of Narnia. It, it's not retelling the story. And it's not even a it, it is about it, but it's more about what it tells us about the human condition. So the songs are maybe titled, some of the songs are titled, like there's a new song for Trumpkin, there's Puddle Gum, Puddle Glum's Anthem, wow. Lucy's Jail, right, Diggory's Regret. Um, but then there's, you know, Come Further Up, Blood for Blood. I mean, it's just a really well done album. And I, I have grown to appreciate the more we, we, stream music and make playlists i appreciate albums that tell stories from start to finish and that the songs are in an order yeah and so this one just is a great job i mean it's it's not new it's from 2014 i don't think she's super well known she keeps putting out good work and so i'm a new fan of hers now because of that album so i'll link to that because i just i love it i think it's fantastic and it's great for um just if you like that storyline because of what it um, what it tells you about, honestly, sacramentality and yeah, and having that perspective. So it's really great. Are you a fan of the Oh Hellos? Yeah, I am actually. So uh-huh. did you remember their album Dear Wormwood from oh, yes, years, that's right. years ago? But they have a song called The Ballad of Used to Scrub. You're right. I completely and, forgot about that. Okay. And that entire that entire album is is wonderful, beautiful album that sort of works out a lot of Lewis's C.S. Lewis's metaphors and and stories. And it's boy, that's a that's a good album. And their work, their latest, and I think maybe we've talked about the, one of their EPs. If we haven't, we should. I should. Yeah, because I think, it really does yeah. all the things for me. Yeah, we mentioned it just in a text conversation, but I think that would be worth talking about because I had listened to it and I thought it was excellent. So you're right. Oh, yeah. Their their latest run of four EPs is amazing, but I, I love it when artists like I'll have to go listen to Sarah Sparks. I've never heard of her, but I love it when artists take those risks of saying, I'm gonna I'm gonna take something and and give an artistic representation of it. Absolutely. Um, yep. Yeah, and and roll and roll art off of art. I love that. Me too. Me too. All right. Well, guys. I would love to hear from you too about what's one little good thing that's making your life better. So tell us about your work of art or thing or habit or idea that's making life better. Leave us a short voicemail. You can call 401-684-GOOD and it goes straight to voicemail um, telling us about it. Or you can email us as well where you can uh, look at the show at thegoodlistshow.com. So you can find links to all of my personal work, books, newsletter, all that good stuff at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, tell us where we can find more of you online. You can find me at sethhaines.com. You can find me at sethhaines.com substack.com. That's my substack newsletter. And then anywhere where you would use a hashtag, you can find me at Seth Haynes, H-A-I 
NES. Although I don't know some of the new social platforms, not hashtags, the, the at sign, the ampersand sign, the at sign. I am not 100% sure about those platforms. You won't find me there. Just Twitter, Instagram. Right, right. We're done finding new places. Yeah, we don't do that. I'm not going to any other platforms. (laughs) No, me neither. I'm leaving more than I'm I'm joining, for sure. That's probably smart. Yeah. All right, guys. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. And thanks, as always, to Caroline Tassell and Kyle Oxenrider for their help, as well as my furry intern, Jenny. I'm Tish Oxenrider, and Seth and I will be back here with one more conversation. So be looking for that. Thanks for listening to The Good List, and thanks for being here, Seth. Thanks for having me.